Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is the Remnant Podcast brought to you by Dispatch Media. You can go to thedispatch.com, that's thedispatch.com, and sign up for newsletters, find out about podcasts, uh, get the, uh, the, the answer to everything, which is not necessarily 42, and, um, uh, and you can become a member of the Dispatch, which would be a wonderful thing for everybody to do, particularly at this glorious time of year. Um, and speaking of glorious times of year, uh, we have today as a guest uh, my old friend, former colleague at National Review, and one of the uh, world's most famous masters of the Lombada, Jim Garrity. Jim, great to see you. Jonah, it is great to be here. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say congratulations to you and all the other guys at the Dispatch. Uh, I'm hearing great things about it. What I see is terrific. I, I hear a lot of people saying it is the second best conservative publication out there. So, so well done. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and I'll tell you what, it's fine to be the second best conservative publication out there right now. We haven't had the full launch yet and we have to you have to aim for something. Ah, uh, there you, you go. Know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you guys... Like Avis, we try harder. You know, you, know, you, know you, you guys are like the little mechanical bunny that we greyhounds chase. <laughs> and uh, and that, that, that's fine. Oh, I should say who this podcast is sponsored by today. Uh, that And that would be Circle, Mrs. Fields Cookies, and also by the National Association of Scholars. We'll talk more about them in a little bit. Um, okay, so this is a... Just full disclosure for listeners, we're racking up some podcasts here because I'm about to leave the country, um, and not because of that warrant. I got that quashed. But uh, we figured we should do one rank punditry thing before the end of the year, and and the rankest pundit I know is Jim Garrity. And uh, um, so we've- Checking my deodorant. <laughs> um, we figured we would do this, and so we were recording this on- um, Tuesday, December 17th, something, whatever that date is. That sounds right to me. Is that what today is? Oh, wow, I got it. And uh, so where to begin? Let's, um, let's not begin with the impeachment stuff. Let's begin with the fantastic uh, firing on all cylinders Democratic primary. You know, uh, Jonah, this is a very big week. Uh-huh. Um, Wednesday night, which is tomorrow night. Uh, a new episode of The Mandalorian drops early on Disney+. Plus. Thursday, when many theaters have their advanced screening of The Rise of Skywalker, the Democratic National Committee, in all of its wisdom, has chosen to schedule its Democratic debate, which I am more or less contractually obligated to watch. Uh-huh. It will be their first debate that has seven people participating, not the full 10. Uh-huh. Uh, several candidates might get to speak once every 15 minutes with so many fewer candidates up on stage. It will not feature Cory Booker. It will not feature Julian Castro. Um, there was at one point, a, a you know, it looked like it was going to be uh, an entirely pallid selection of candidates, which mm-hmm. made many, you know, quite a few Democrats were upset by that. I have hated this debate structure for a whole bunch of different reasons. I, I, I'm Besides the usual ideological reasons, I think the Democratic National Committee by trying to be fair, have ended up with a very bad system for everybody. I think that 1% threshold early on was way too low. I think having a two-night debate with 10 candidates of each night was ridiculous early on. I guess you, you know, I guess it's worth it to have a cameo appearance by a Tim Ryan type or a Michael Bennett type. But by and large, you can't have a good debate with 10 people up on stage. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think you, you max out at like five, six, seven, mm-hmm. maybe. So tonight, this should be a big deal. Um, it's six, Thursday night. 
Thursday night. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, this is six days before Christmas. I don't, you know, a couple nights before Hanukkah. I don't think this is really when people are really tuned into this. This is going on in the middle of the impeachment process. What they've done by having, first by having 26 candidates at one point, and then by having just so many people up on stage, you haven't seen a lot of churn in that field. Joe Biden has been the front runner nationally this entire process. Number two, almost the entire time has been Bernie Sanders, although I guess Warren was up there for a little bit. Um, Warren has been a strong third throughout all this. The only candidates who've really gotten any traction, Kamala Harris, a little bit after that first debate, then she crashed and burned after that second one. And you can say, if you say, oh, well, this process is so unfair, it doesn't allow any new faces to rise to the top. Look, Pete Buttigieg is named a lot of these polls a strong fourth. A couple polls had him first in Iowa. Um, Pete Buttigieg is, you know, refuting this argument that, you know, no newcomer had a shot at ever entering the first year. By a lot of standards, this is a very wide open primary. I have been fairly bullish on Joe Biden throughout this entire process. I think the longer it goes on, the more it shows a lot of Democratic primary voters aren't looking to shop around. Mm -hmm. Um, he still is the guy who is polling best against Donald Trump. That might just be, uh, you know, name ID. But if, if you're a Democrat and you just want to end the Trump presidency, I think you can make a fairly strong argument that Joe Biden, with all of his gaffes and all of his goofiness and all of his sense that he's, you know, he's like that milk that's well past its sell-by date. Um, he's probably the strongest bet they have. And so I, if, you, if, if I had, if somebody put a gun to my head today and said, who, who do you think is going to be the Democratic nominee? I'd say, put that gun down. Uh, but also, you know, yeah, I think Biden's going to be the nominee. Okay. So as you can tell, I wasn't taking copious notes, but I, <laughs> I have notes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first of all, you may be spared and be able to see the Star Wars movie after all, because the 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 Republic hinges on the food service union. They worked it out. They nope. worked it out. They worked it out. Bastards. Jonah, I come to this podcast prepared. Yeah. When did they work it out? Just this morning. Ah, oh, geez, I was recording another podcast. There you, you go. Know. Uh, you know, I, I, it was kind of ironic. It would be kind of fun to watch the entire debate get canceled because it would have been fantastic. All seven Democratic candidates said, "I will not cross a picket line" and all that kind of stuff. Well, you want to talk about leverage, right? I mean, at that point, that union could say, "I want gold-plated everything yeah. for our two-hour breaks." You know, um, um, I was kind of hoping a baller move would have been for one person to say. Look, I definitely side with labor, but these are these are important issues and the country needs to mm-hmm. have these things. And what do the networks do? What does the network do when like only Pete Buttigieg shows up? It's just like either Andrew Yang, yeah. right? You know, kind of a, yeah, I'm fine with it. You know, I, I, I hope they work it out. But I'm... Ask me another question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so second thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've noticed this on the editor's podcast, which I finally, you are semi-regular on, which mm-hmm. I think is a welcome addition. Um, and I do highly recommend the editor's podcast. I think it is great. Um, but taking a very distant, I mean, not even really in the same solar system of, of grading things compared to the way Rich Lowry says, notorious MBD, (laughs) um, or in previous, uh, times when he, the effervescent Ryan Salam, uh, uh, your pronunciation of Buttigieg, I know. I know that Donald Trump said that this gave this primer about how to pronounce it. It's boot edge edge. Yeah, right. And well, like, earlier, it wasn't just Trump. I, I there were. Is it is it Buttigieg? Is well, it Buttigieg. So it's just I, I, when I hear his people say it, it's, it's there's there's a uh, 
the peaks and valleys are smoothed out a bit more. <laughs> There's a half nanosecond of space. Like once I start hearing you say it, it's boot edge edge. Yeah. And boot edge. Boot edge. Boot edge. There you go. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's it it, it 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 hits my brain a little bit. I can't tell if you're being now iconic. you know. No, no, it, it's not. This is just. I, this is how somebody told me early on. This is uh, how you're supposed to pronounce it, and it's stuck. And of okay. course, you can't uh, rewrite it. But this is why everyone calls him Mayor Pete. Because half uh, the country, yeah. half the country can't. This is why I will not be president. Yeah. you know, all kind of stuff. You know, when I was a little kid, that we read some book in class um, where pajamas were a major. Uh, sort of MacGuffin, mm-hmm. you know, in the storyline. And for whatever reason, my quasi-dyslexic eyes saw Pajama Jams. <laughs> and I read the, almost the entire book until someone pointed out it was pajamas. And the whole, it was like finding the secret wisdom. The entire, oh, that's what this book is about. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, so I agree with you on Biden. I think Biden is, as Ramesh puts it, um, he's incredibly unpopular. It's just that Democratic voters haven't gotten the memo. Um, um, but and maybe as I just I wrote a comment about this and I ranted about this on a previous podcast. But this idea, and I, I I know you were just basically borrowing progressive principles to beat them about the head and neck with them. But this idea that the debate stage was almost undiverse is really kind of crazy. We've only mm. had one Catholic president yeah. in the history of the United States. We've had one black president, and the idea that a gay guy, a woman who at least until recently claimed to be an Indian, uh, uh, a Jewish socialist. Asian man. Asian man, you know, not even secret Asian man, like out in the open (laughs) Asian man. uh, That that somehow doesn't qualify as diverse in the grand sweep of American history is crazy. I I did a corner post on this a couple weeks ago where, you know, so why are Cory Booker and Julian Castro not up on that stage? Well, one was the donor threshold. They had to have more donors, but that's actually the easy part for a lot of these. It's hitting the threshold in these early polls. And I went went through how many polls had broken down by race, right? In in South Carolina, in Texas, in California, uh, Nevada, you know, and you look and the the level of support, there were a decent number of polls where Cory Booker's support among African-Americans was zero. Right. The support of Julian Castro among Latinos in Florida in a poll for a couple, like around November or so was zero. Right. Why are they not up on that stage? Because Latinos and African-Americans don't want to support them. There are enough of them that if all of them said, hey, yeah, that's our guy. That would get them at that threshold of the even if a lot of them, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, like you know, they don't have to. So I mean, in mass. So we go. Why? Why are so many white candidates up on the stage? Well, because a lot of blacks and Latinos like Biden, like Sanders, like Warren. They like the front runners, and you know, you and I, we we, people can debate why that is. Maybe they're not getting exposed to them enough. Maybe there's not enough. But look, the other thing I would note, and this is, I'm also somewhat bullish on Mike Bloomberg. Not enormous. Okay. Uh, for similar reasons that you've expressed elsewhere, but go yeah. on. Make your. Well, I was going to say that um, Tom Steyer qualified for this debate. Tom Steyer is like I, you know one of my favorite phrases: a whirling dervish of raw political charisma. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, is very influenced by early G files. You know, used to have these little phrases you would come back to. Uh, I'm thinking about labeling Tom Steyer this like vortex black hole that sucks in all charisma. Right? No, no one's ever said the the, the best part of the Tom Steyer presidential campaign. Is Will Ferrell's impression of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, but Steyer's on there. And yeah. how is Steyer on there? Well, he met the threshold in these early state polls by running a ton of TV ads. And right. I suspect that for 4% of the people out there 
Who do you support in the nomination? If Tom, they just saw a Tom Steyer ad yesterday, they'll tell the person on the phone, Tom Steyer. Yeah. And that's what got Tom Steyer. Now, if he can do that, Mike Bloomberg is running ads, TV ads across the country on a level we've never seen from a primary campaign before. Yeah. That can get you up. You know, the interesting thing is that Mike Bloomberg will not qualify for these debates because he's not accepting any donations. And right. they've set the, 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 yeah, yeah. a donor threshold, which is kind of weird. But So it's funny. I actually tried to do the math on this. I think the number right now that people – let's just say for the sake of argument that Bloomberg is worth $52 billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somewhere around there, right? For his third term running for mayor of New York. Mm-hmm. He spent, I believe the number is $170 per vote. That sounds about right. Yeah. So to get 66 million votes, which is what you need basically to win, mm-hmm. that would cost you, my math holds it somewhere around $12 billion. He's got two sons. You could blow $12 billion, completely not change your lifestyle at all. Remember, mm-hmm. his company is still profitable, so he's still taking in more money. Mm-hmm. Still leave somewhere between fifteen and twenty billion apiece to your kids, and spend one hundred seventy bucks per voter to win six. six and obviously, it's the scale yeah. issues, but those cut both ways. Well, let's but also point out if you're the Democratic nominee, people could vote for you anyway. That's right, right. right. You, you you could easily you, know, you only need to spend a tenth of that just to w- get the swing votes. Right, just to get to the and, and the thing is to buy the nominee. The, the hard thing to buy is the nomination. Yeah. Once you've bought that, or the important thing to buy is the nomination, yeah. and then. You know, then you're just working, you're 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 pedaling downhill. It's, yeah. it's no problem. So I I agree with you. I think it's it's more possible. Also, and I swear to God, I'm trying not to sound like Phil Graham with what was his Dicky Flats? Dicky Flats, yeah. Dicky Flats, tag. who was his barber, right? Yes. And then, or like Tom Friedman, who everybody knows, I am my cabbie. Not a huge fan of. Um, I was climbing Kilimanjaro with a CEO. <laughs> but, uh, one of one of my barometers is my cigar shop, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's interesting how many people either like Bloomberg or think Bloomberg has a chance. These are they range from like municipal city workers, uh, cops, transit people, and all that kind of stuff to some pretty high end lawyers and or high dollar lawyers. You know, businessmen and all the rest. And it comes up a lot. And people are like, you know, I kind of like just the no drama thing. And he seems like a grown up and blah, 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 blah. And the Democrats seem crazy to me, but Trump is a problem. It's interesting. You know, I think there's more of an appeal there than people yeah. thought. I, I'll give you, you know, just one comparable anecdote. Let me put it out just for anyone asking. I think Mike Bloomberg would be a nightmare of a president. Sure. Uh, I'm a reasonably big gun guy, and this guy doesn't give a hoot about the Constitution, Second sure. Amendment. He's a nanny, classic technocrat. Nanny state on steroids, yeah. um, arrogant, narcissist, uh, walks around with armed security, thinks mm-hmm. everybody else should be on our, you know, insufferable on a whole bunch of fronts. Uh, speaking to a old friend who was a teacher up in the New Jersey area, uh, you know, left of center, no, no two ways, but, but not a, you know, radical. And she thought he was terrific. Yeah. And she thought New York had become so, anyway, my, my sense, I believe a, a couple, couple conservative magazines have written pieces along these lines. The Bloomberg era in New York was pretty good if you were poor and pretty good if you were rich. Yeah. If you were in the middle class, you were getting squeezed out of that city in terms of cost of living and everything else. And But he took care of enough demographics and had enough to spend that nobody really got to challenge. Now, look, does Bloomberg look good after a couple terms of Bill de Blasio? Probably. You know, was he a little more pragmatic on crime and maybe some finance issues and stuff? Probably. But, you know. He was also living off of a lot of borrowed capital from 
Rudy Giuliani. The good years. You know. 1.2. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever he is now. Yeah. Um, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. So on the issue of Kamala Harris, is there any evidence that she dropped out of the race for any other reason than the fact that she ran a bad campaign and people didn't really like her very much? Were you leaning towards the idea of she was trying to wrangle a running mate slot or... Uh... No, no, no. Of, of all the people who've okay. dropped out so far, yeah. okay. she had the best press, yeah. right? She had the highest expectations. Coming out of that first debate where she attacked Biden with that mm-hmm. turned out to be remarkably incoherent thing about busing. Um, and when she dropped out, the spin, like immediately the next morning on, on NPR, I heard someone ta- saying that it was because uh, she was crowded out by billionaires and because uh, the Democratic Party doesn't value diversity. Mm-hmm. And she may have been crowded out by a billionaire. That's entirely possible. But it seems to me Pete Buttigieg isn't crowded out by a billionaire. Elizabeth Warren isn't crowded out by a billionaire. Bad candidates are going to yeah. be crowded out like small fish when a whale comes in. I would even go further to say, you know, I mean, Michael Bennett is still running. Uh, for listeners who may not know, Michael Bennett is a Colorado senator who really exists. Uh, you know, Delaney is still running. Like, you know, yeah. you can operate on a shoestring and go to, you know, uh, you know, Holiday Inns in Iowa and New Hampshire for as long as you like, you know. Do you have a theory uh, about why they're still running? Um a bit like uh, officer and gentleman, they got no place else to go. Uh, well, but you know, if you're a sitting you know, senator, you do have some place else. To yeah, go. Um, I think in some of these cases, no, I have no idea. I am sure that for Delaney, this is the most fun he's ever had. And let me observe, you know, John Delaney. But John Delaney is another person who really exists. Who he's a congressman from Maryland. I keep thinking he's from Delaware because he has right. a beach house in Delaware. There's apparently the second biggest beach house in the state. The uh, or uh, it's the first one or two. And also, when I think about it, it, looks like Chris Coons's little brother, right? Yeah. yeah. So that, that I maybe visually. Uh, by the way, that other beach house in the state, big beach house in the state, was by Joe Biden. Oh, um, yeah. Isn't it perfect? Yes. Two Democratic presidential candidates of the two big, you know. Um, but you know, it, early on in one debate, he was like, you know, hey guys, why are we trying to take away health insurance from people who like the ones, the plans they have? And I never really got a great answer uh, from any of that stuff, which was I thought was a good, you know, other than you know, no one likes their health insurance company. Well, it's not like, you know, do you feel affection towards it? Do right. you, you, are you sending them a Christmas card? It's like, no, you're you're comfortable with the coverage you have. You aren't sure that you're, you know, having watched healthcare.gov and how, you know, everyone told you, oh, you'll, you like your plan, you keep your plan. You like your doctor, you keep your doctor. No, you, you like what you got. You don't want anybody from the government coming in and mucking around with this. Um, John Delaney is like, okay, let's, let's leave those people alone. And Elizabeth Warren, the other, the other, you know, brief moment on stage where he marked was he, he laid out, he says, why can't we as Democrats provide health care to everybody who wants it? He goes down this thing, you know, rebuild our infrastructure and all that stuff. And Elizabeth Warren said, why are you running for president if you don't, if you aren't willing to dream big or something like that? <laughs> and it was just this, like, if everything that Delaney had just laid out, a, an American president had done, we would be going, Wow, that was an amazing presidency. Yeah. They accomplished so much. And in Elizabeth Warren's mind, that's the small ball. Right? right. That's the the modest dreams and all that stuff. That's the lowered expectations. But sorry, so this gets yeah. so get, they, feel free when these ideas pop back into your head to return back to the rank punditry for a second. Yeah. But you had a post up at NRO a while ago about the magic wand mm. and how and this is something that I've been writing about a bit. And I saw that in your newsletter, so thank you for yeah. referring to it, Link. Um um, and thank you for subscribing. And uh, the it's very weird to me how 
we more and more think in this country, and particularly the activist base of both parties, seem to think that we live in a parliamentary democracy, right, where you really are voting for a party. I mean, yeah, you're voting for Boris Johnson because you know he's the head of the party, but mm, yeah. reality, you vote Tory, and by voting for your Tory member of parliament, that person then casts yeah. a vote for Boris Johnson. And the the stuff that Elizabeth Warren, before that Beto, um, Kamala Harris, all these people... Oh, how about our current president? Every dream you've ever had is going to come true, yeah. you know. And, and it, it's a bipartisan problem. Yeah. But it's... You know, we had Al Gore. I mean, Al Gore overpromised. Hillary Clinton overpromised. You could argue that George W. Bush overpromised, but he didn't. When people are hurting, government's got to move. Yeah, but but that that eventually people will not hurt. I pounded my keyboard till my I lost my fingerprints from from into bloody stubs. But at that. That wasn't a statement about how e- That's right. Fair was, enough. Yeah. yeah. What, what W was- It was very unconservative, but it was not by It was itself. unconservative, but he, you know, yeah. he was talking about how, you know, uh, it, was, it was very much like his dad's more will than wallet stuff yeah. in his inaugural. But we're now told by Bernie, all these people sort of mimicking Trump, that the only hard part is winning the presidency, and then everything they want to do will be easy. I mean, uh, Elizabeth Warren said the other day- that she wants to be the last president elected with the Electoral College? Walk me through that one, Padawan. I mean, how the hell are you going to get rid of the Electoral <laughs> College? I mean, by the time you run yeah. for president again, you know, in your first term. Oh, and also socialize medicine and confiscate the guns and all the rest. I have gradually come around to be uh, an admirer of Ted Cruz. And it's not just because of how easy it is to do his voice. People can say, hey, wait a minute. That's kind of the same voice Jim was doing for George W. Bush a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really your when, Texan politician. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Except, you know, Phil Graham is lower. Um, but the gist being that there was a time when Ted Cruz was saying, you know, you know, Mitch McConnell and Republican leaders have sold us out. You know, the easiest thing in the world is to be a backbencher who says, ah, our leaders, God, they, you know, they went to the negotiating table and they they lost their pants. They they you know completely they accepted. If I was negotiating, I draw a much harder bargain and I'd get everything we want and free candy too, and you know and, and you know and a pony, you know, and you end up in this situation where people start to believe it, right? And you know, I, I think our, our former, you know, your former colleague, my still colleague, Jay Nordlinger, used to do this thing where he went through like every Senate Republican leader of the last thirty years, and he'd say stuff like, you know, people were really frustrated with Bob Mitchell. We really needed a Bob Dole type. Then Bob, would go, oh no, no, we need a we need a real yeah, conservative yeah. Ted, Ted uh, Trent Lott, and he just goes down each one, and each one was a quote unquote disappointment. And surprise, surprise, when you're the leader of the caucus, you have to consider the views of everybody in the caucus and not put your uh, Olympia Snows and your Susan Collinses in a rough spot. Right. And and that's just the nature of leadership. Your leader's never going to be quite as far as you, you know, welcome to politics. Welcome to the American system of government. You're going to have to compromise. And we've ended up in this system where the voters reward the people who say no you don't have to compromise. I have some, as I said, magical wand or, right. or the force or Jedi mind. I have some way to make all these things that have been really politically difficult. I, it'll be easy. It's a secret plan. Elect me and I'll we'll see. And then they get, you know, and then, you know, Donald Trump ends up saying, no one could have possibly known that healthcare policy was going to be this complicated. Right. No, but, you know, <laughs> it's, inf- I mean, it's, it, because it's not actually, 
I used the wrong phrase when I said parliamentary democracy because there's something implied in parliamentary democracy that it's a liberal order, that is the rule of law. What they're basically saying is pure democracy. Once 51% of the people vote for something, they get everything they could possibly yeah. want, right? And bill rights don't matter anymore. All that stuff doesn't matter anymore. And um, your, your point about leadership, I just wrote a column for the Times about about this. It's true about majority parties generally, right? And it's like majority parties inherently are weird because they have in their coalition groups that hate each other, mm-hmm. right? And the classic one was the FDR one, which had like communist Jews, segregationists, blacks, socialist intellectuals, classical liberals, all these guys, protectionists and free traders. They're all sort of in the, mm-hmm. in the coalition. And by definition, that's why they're majorities because they've brought people together around some sense of interest and whatever. And the weird thing now is that you know the sun and moon theory of of political parties. This guy Samuel Lovell came out with it in the late nineteen fifties, and the, basically the argument is is that you have one sun party and one moon party, and the sun party is where all the action is because it's the majority, and all the real policy disputes are within that party, and then the moon party is the minority, so the rump party. Mm-hmm who you only see because it basks in the reflected light of the Sun Party. And so for from FDR until about 1968, the Democratic Party was the obviously the Sun Party, right? It was all major policy decisions were made within the Democratic Party. And the GOP mattered mostly as sort of a majority maker. So like the Civil Rights Act had more Republicans than Democrats and all that kind of stuff. But we now live in a time where both parties kind of think they're a moon party. They both think that the other side is winning. They both think that ideological purity is more important than compromise. They both think that, like, um, if we just uh, – that 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 working with somebody outside of our tribe is evil, um, that – and that – and so therefore, once we win the next election, yeah. we only have to talk amongst ourselves about what we're going to do and we're going to give ourselves – you know, we're just going to get a, just a chest full of magic beans and get everything that we want. Hold on, I got to get another beer. All right. Okay, go on. I was going to say, so one of the things that could be really interesting if we ever saw Mike Bloomberg in one of these Democratic debates is how much does the agenda and worldview and policy proposals and all that stuff of Mike Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders overlap? Yeah. N- not that much, right? right. I mean, you know, if you Those are two pretty far apart guys. Both running for the Democratic nomination, both with their own bases of support. What you know, somebody's going to win, and maybe you could say Biden's in the middle or something. But by and large, you know, somebody's going to end up pretty disappointed. Maybe both. You know, on the Republican side, how much does I was trying to think of the most the Trumpiest uh, member of Congress I could think of? Louis Gohmert sound like a good guy. Sure, okay, yeah, yeah. and Pat Toomey. Yeah, how much do their agendas overlap? Probably not that much. Like tax cuts and defense spending, and that's probably about it, yeah, right? Yeah. You know. That this is the nature of our parties, but everybody's kind of in denial of this. So this yeah. recognition of like just to get the majority, you have to work with a lot of people who really aren't on the same page with you with a bunch as a bunch of stuff. Welcome to American politics. You know this this is what you have to deal with. I, I think you could also. I, I remember saying you could probably go back to two thousand six, maybe in two thousand four. Every election, with one or two exceptions, has been some sort of strong rebuke of the previous election. Mm-hmm. It's like American politics. We've had one change election after another, except for like 2012. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, almost all of the – well, I mean, that was between 2010 and 2014. The, the only exception I can think of was 2008, 2000, uh, 2006, 2008. But after that, Republican wave 2010, Obama wins re-election 2012. Democratic you – know, uh, oh, okay, 014 and 016. But then you have 2018. 
every two years, it's in the American electorate saying, oh, wait, I didn't want this. Right. Well, well yeah, you did. Right. <laughs> you did vote for that. And this, you know, neither party seems to want to make the, realize the lesson of, okay, everybody's basically said, oh, we've got the majority. Let's ram through everything we can while we've got these majorities and, and use reconciliation and, and use every trick in the book because we don't know if we're ever going to get a chance to do this again. Right. And chances are we're going to lose this majority the next term in, in the next election. So we're going to be back in the minority, back in the side, you know, the side that's throwing grenades instead of catching them. Um, and that's – I don't think it's a particularly good way to govern our system, but this is what the electorate seems to want so far. Yeah. Well, so But when you say the electorate, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we get into trouble is that we – ascribe to the electorate some collective viewpoint, right? When in reality, 50.1% voted for one thing and 49.9% voted for something else. So far, no party has put together a coalition of voters that will show up every two years. Yeah. That's, you know. Yeah. And it was interesting because all throughout the Obama years, we on the right were kind of chuckling. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. They have so many Obama supporters who don't vote in midterms. They don't vote in gubernatorial elections at off years like in Virginia. And oh, my goodness. You know, you silly. You've got these low information voters who are charmed by Obama's celebrity, but they don't really pay any attention to the policy. They're not going to show up for John Corzine. They're not going to show up for Cree deeds. You can make an argument that now we're in the same situation with Trump voters. Yeah. There are a bunch of voters out there who love Donald Trump and will show up when he's on the ballot. But they're not going to show up. They didn't show up in 2018. Didn't show up anywhere in Virginia anytime soon. You know, these last couple of mid, you know, off-year elections. So, you know, this you don't – none of you know, none of this is a really good formula for, for anything resembling consistent government. You have this pendulum that swings back and forth every two years. So it's funny. I, I never really thought about this analogy before. But um, in my book, I have this argument that I got from Mansur Olson about where the first states come from, like the first – like city-state kind mm -hmm. of government um, after the agricultural revolution. And and Menser Olson makes this argument. It's the it's the rise of this what he calls the stationary bandit. So uh, he says, and he has some, some real-world examples from Chinese history, but just for the sake of making this go quickly, um, he says, imagine you work on a, you're, you're in a peasant agricultural village. Marauders come in, Vikings mm -hmm. come in, and they just take all your stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, they leave anything that's not nailed down, they take with them. If you're a peasants, the odds of, after a few times of this happening, the odds of you guys like replanting or building another house is very unlikely, right? And so you, the, the, and it also becomes worse for the marauders because they're counting on all these fat English villages that they can pillage once a year. Mm -hmm. But when pillage season comes around and because they didn't leave them anything, they're poor and poor and poor. And so, like, the Vikings go hungry, too. And so what Manser Olson posited was that one of the things that creates the state is the stationary bandit. It's the bandit who realizes, I don't have to come back every year. I'll just set up shop here. I'll let the peasants keep 50% of their stuff. And I'll actually help and I'll defend them against other marauders and I'll help and we'll Maybe even dig some wells for them, whatever. And you start taking what, you know, the, the eggheads call rents off of mm -hmm. these people. And you that's a, the first state, you know, which is why, like, people like Kevin Williamson and Albert J. Knocker write that really the state is born in theft. But um, so, but the point is, is that 
with these two parties that think of themselves as minority parties. They ride into town like the marauding bandits. They grab everything they can, but they they plant nothing for the future. Mm-hmm. When what they should be doing is like winning over some Democrats. I mean, I remember talking to some Hill guys once about how much they admired the old Democratic Party, where the the Tip O'Neill Democrats would give the Republicans just enough stuff that they never got too hungry to do more, (laughs) you know? And the parties don't think like that anymore. It's this zero-sum thing, in part because the ideological stuff is so powerful. The other thing is that, you know, I I was just reading something by... uh, I'm sure somewhere in your your long and varied work history, you have some bosses who are probably like, good God, whatever happened to that cute, adorable Jonah who seems so reasonable and understandable? There's been Uh, some of that. You know, um, Jack Farrell, John... John A. Farrell, formerly the Boston Globe, back in my wire service days, was my editor. Uh, he's written a couple big biographies of Nixon, and one of them was Tip O'Neill. And he wrote this great op-ed where he pointed out Tip O'Neill, Reagan wins in 1980, takes office in 81, and Tip O'Neill, Speaker of the House, and, you know, he knows Reagan just, you know, kicked Carter's butt up and down the street. He controls the House, but there are a bunch of House Democrats who are feeling pressure to go along and do something. And he comes to the conclusion that he's going to let the Reagan agenda come to the floor. Mm. He's going to speak against it. He's going to say why he thinks it's bad, why it's cutting for the poor, et cetera, et cetera. But he wasn't going to block everything and use every trick in the book to block the Reagan agenda. Well, Reagan gets a lot of his agenda passed. 1982, there's a recession. It doesn't take, you know, it takes a while for the Reagan tax cuts to have that big bonus. Other factors are are working against him. 1982, the Democrats win back 26 House seats. You know, know, there was no way that Reagan could say, well, if Congress had only passed X, Y, or Z, because he'd gotten it all through. Tip O'Neill had, had, he recognized that obstructionism wasn't necessarily the best play in that circumstance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't see anybody in Capitol Hill or anybody in American politics who has the wherewithal to recognize and I mean, maybe it comes from the grassroots. Maybe it comes from, you know, the reaction to Arlen Specter and the two main senators uh, voting for, was it stimulus back in 2000, early 2009, yeah. right? I mean, like, you know, but here, you know, I don't know if this is a good segue of impeachment you're looking for, but I don't think they're going to get any House Republicans voting for uh, impeachment. And I don't know if they're going to, you know, they might get one or two Republican senators voting for impeachment. Might. Like, we're, we're going to have a, a much an entirely partisan. They're going to have two, probably... As of this this conversation, they're probably only going to have two Dem- House Democrats deviating on impeachment. We're going to have almost a completely party line vote on impeachment. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know that's a great. It, it is a great segue for okay. talking about impeachment, but I'm not sure it's a great segue about talking about something that may be even more important, which is circle. Do you think your kids are sleeping only to find them watching another YouTube video at 2 a.m.? Circle can make sure your kids get a distraction free night's sleep. Circle is the award-winning way to manage your family's online time across all their connected devices, inside and outside your home. With Circle, parents can filter what content is allowed, set limits for screen time, monitor history and usage, and even reward kids for good behavior. We're going to try this on the staff here. Just plug Circle Home Plus into your router Download the app, and you can keep track across every connected device, from laptops, phones, and tablets, to smart TVs, streaming devices, and video game consoles, all from one place. And Circle has been getting rave reviews from the Chicago Tribune, People, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and many others. You'd do anything for your kids. Do something easy that'll keep your family on the right path and get Circle. 
So right now, our listeners get a limited time offer of $30 off a Circle Home Plus when you visit meetcircle.com slash dingo and enter dingo at checkout. So that's M-E-E-T circle.com slash dingo. And then also enter Dingo at checkout. Get $30 off when you visit meetcircle.com slash Dingo and enter Dingo at checkout. That's meetcircle.com slash Dingo and Dingo at checkout to save $30. Thanks so much to Circle for uh, sponsoring the Remnant podcast. And thanks to all our listeners who, uh, you know, visit our advertisers because it means a lot to us. And if you can, you know, just drop Dingo like you're carpet bombing. Uh, North Vietnam across every website possible. Let them figure out what the code is. It would be great, but particularly do it for our sponsors. So thanks again to Circle. Okay, so um, before we talk about impeachment proper, this I, mean, I think this is a really important point that hasn't come out in the people that Republicans and conservatives are very uncomfortable talking about, which is, you know, um, what was it? I remember at one point there was talk about whether it would be good for the GOP if Bush lost and blah, 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 blah. And, um, and I remember Rick Brookheiser quoted Ed Koch, who said, my mother always told me it was better to win than to lose, right? And so I get winning is better than losing, particularly in the zero-sum politics time we're in now. But at the same time, I don't want to get all Marxist, but the inability of people to understand that there's a sort of a dialectical function is that because when each party overreaches, it creates a backlash to it, like you described. The idea that the country is going to come to an end if Hillary Clinton had gotten elected in 2016, I always thought was garbage. I have a standing offer of $1,000 to anybody who can provide a non-out-of-context sentence saying a positive for me saying a positive thing about Hillary Clinton. I was not a Hillary Clinton fan. I think my record on the Clintons is pretty good. Um, and, uh, uh, but it wasn't going to be the end of the world, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to be the end of America as, as some of our talk radio friends put it. It was going to be bad, but you know, third terms for the same, you know, third terms for a party that's been in power for eight years, almost always are bad. George HW Bush, you know, that almost never happened for starters. First of all, right? Very, very yeah. rare. And um, people get sick of the party and, and all the rest. And the idea that like if Elizabeth Warren, which I really do not want and I don't think is going to happen. But if Elizabeth Warren won, the idea that it would be the end of the country or the end of conservatism or the end of capitalism I kind of think is garbage. I think in reality, she would be so bad at being president that it would be de discrediting to a lot of her stuff rather than like empowering to it there's a lot of things that donald trump a lot of the policy stuff i like that donald trump has done but donald trump has not been a brand plus long term for the republican party and um so the i mean the question i have is, is like long term the inability for republicans and conservatives to imagine the possibility that trump not running or being impeached would wouldn't in the long run actually be better for the Republican Party? It's just something that you're not allowed to talk about because everyone's you know to the mattresses and all of this stuff. I, I was just say I'm trying. You know, it's been fascinating to watch people respond to this president, not merely with he's a bad president, mm -hmm. but with the he is a dictator, right? That he you know all this kind of stuff. You know my standard line on this. What? 
Donald Trump is not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. Ooh, there you go, right? I mean, <laughs> Which you know, is true. Um, the, the, you know, all the time, all the number of times he gets, you know, struck down by judges, all the number of times he can't find the votes in the Senate. Yet. Um, all the times he wants to have the G7 summit at his hotel. Yes, and he doesn't allow it, isn't, you know, doesn't get to do it. Um, the, the, yeah, you know, I, I, everyone having to see Democrats, and I have a lot of Democrat friends who are like, oh, can you believe this? I'm, can you believe we have a president who's so bad? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can believe it because, you know, for me, we've had a, lo- a bad president for a long stretch yeah. now, right? You know, I had a soft spot for W. But, you know, but other, you know, really like Bill Clinton before that, I'm used to having bad presidents, right? right? I, you know, part of it is that you grow up, I was five to 13 during the Reagan years. So for my entire formula of years, I thought all presidents were going to be that good. Right. Right? They're all just, you know, they're all been disappointments in one form or another. Um, so, you know, we'll get through this. I guess that's, you know, I don't know whether this is like middle age kicking in or just having covered politics for a long time and you start seeing the same promises over and over again. It's been somewhat refreshing to watch the uh, the sudden souring of public opinion on uh, Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. By the way, why is it Medicare for all and not Medicaid for all? Yeah, I don't know. That's right. Question. I mean, we think Medicare because because old people, right? right? You know, and people old people seem happy. Medicaid, look, nobody's really all that happy with Medicaid, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Medicaid is like, well, you're really dirt poor. Here's a little bit. We'll cover some stuff if you can find a doctor who's willing to take it, right? Yeah, you know, I don't understand why Republicans don't say they're not promising Medicare for all. They're promising VA hospitals for all, right? Which you is know, what they're doing. Yeah, you know, I debated um, Peter Beinart for years on college campuses, on blogging heads, all these places. Peter's still a friend of mine, makes some of my Zionist friends very cross with me. But uh, um, for years, Peter used to, like Paul Krugman, tout the VA hospital system as what American-style socialized medicine would look like. As if it was like... Uh, did they stop that around 2014, 2015? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, it uh, slipped off the list of talking points? Yeah, you know. Um, anyway. So- you know, no, but what I was going to is that you don't... you know. A lot. First of all, when you sent you early this year, when you saw a poll, oh, Paul, so many Americans love Medicare for all because they had no idea what it was. Right. It basically was like, oh, I'm going to get health care and somebody else is going to pay for it. The moment real information started coming out was like, look, you know, you know, Democratic friends of mine who were not following this, and I'd say, you know, under Medicare for all, you don't get to keep your uh, your your health insurance that you currently have. They all, you know, you know, what you're talking about, Willis? You know, there was this like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I'm fine with mine. I thought it meant I had the option of government. No, 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 no. That's Under, Buttigieg, I mean, that is the brilliance right? of Buttigieg, just saying Medicare for all who want it was a brilliant. Under thing. Bernie Sanders' you know, law, it is illegal for you to have private insurance. It is illegal for your employer to have any plan that competes with the government plan. Right. right. You are going to turn every hell into criminals. Like, whoosh, right. In, with you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield, everything, Aetna, everything you got, whoosh, gone in a, you know, with the stroke of a pen. Under Bernie's plan, guys from the DMV snap on rubber gloves <laughs> and check out your prostate. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's in the fine print. But yeah. Uh, you know, no, but, like, but just one point what, of this, because it drives me crazy, is on the in every debate so far and we don't need to litigate abortion right. in every way you know wherever you come down on that that's a conversation for another time one of these days i want to do a full on abortion podcast and lose half my listeners whatever <laughs> way it goes down but um bernie warren all these people they say this is a personal choice that has to be between you and your doctor and the government should stay out of it and they never connect the dot that they actually want the doctor to work for the government, yes. <laughs> you know, which is insane. Um, but so one of the things that's been kind of you know strangely pleasing in this past year, 
uh, which, you know, in the political world has offered not a lot of joy, but, you know, personally, it's been a great year. Um, but just his observation of the American people heard the promises on Medicare for all and connected it to, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And they're like, wait a minute, wait, we've heard this before and it didn't work out that way. Wait, maybe these politicians don't really know how all the, how all the, the details work. And maybe they're assuming things are going to work out okay. And maybe I'm going to get the short end of the stick. And for once, all of a sudden, there was a recoiling for this, not just in the uh, electorate as large, but even within the Democratic Party. So it's been kind of refreshing to see that. So, I mean, there's this theory you hear around, which I think is probably right. I'm just curious on your take on it, that many of us thought that Bernie and Warren were basically fighting for the same voters. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that, well, obviously there's overlap, that... And I don't mean this in a pejorative way. I'm just uh, as a shorthand. <laughs> Bernie's voters are more down market in the sense that they're socioeconomically yeah. sort of less college education. Look at their career paths between these two. Yeah. yeah. And and that Warren was winning the, the college-educated university town technocrats, the yeah. private university technocrats. Yes. Right? And and. Sanders was winning sort of the physical plant guys at the state school, Democrat. And it turns out that, that Warren's people were much more elite um, and sort of wine track versus yeah, beer, beer track. track. And they're two different kinds of basically socialists. One mm -hmm. is technocrat and one is uh, sort of uh, uh, Green Bay Packers. Yeah. And um, the only socialist football league. Yeah. And uh, our football team. And, um, and so Bernie who at least is honest about taxing the middle class, um, uh, can get away with talking about socializing medicine and being honest about the price tag. But the second Elizabeth Warren actually tried to stick to her brand of, I have a plan for that, and came out with a price tag, sort of the bourgeois technocratic people who, were, who liked her as sort of a sort of Michael Bloomberg with the Indian headdress and a skirt, um, we're like, holy crap, yeah. you want to charge us $32 trillion for this? We can't afford this. This yeah. is nuts. First of all, that demographic you're describing, which one do you think has better health care? Probably the Warren voters. Yeah, right? yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe the Sanders voters are union yeah. members and they have these so-called Cadillac plans. But right. By and large, yeah, yeah. you know, there are a bunch of people who, you know, if, if you're in a, you know, in a high-level administrator at a university or in the human resources department, um, one of my other, uh, Greg Columbus, who I do a podcast with, said, you know, Elizabeth Warren is the HOA member who tells you that your mailbox is nine inches from the curb instead of the required eight inches right, from right, the curb. Right, right. Another demographic is silver-haired, overweight old ladies who are telling you you have the wrong cover sheet on your uh, submission for your HR benefits, yeah. you know. Yeah. I always um, said that Hillary Clinton was the lady who came up to you and said, there's no eating in the library. Yes, you know. <laughs> but if there were eating allowed in the library, I bet that everyone listening to this podcast would get Mrs. Fields' cookies sent to the library to eat. When time is short, but the need to give gifts is high, the answer is the gift of cookies. That's where Mrs. Fields comes in. When Debbie Fields started Mrs. Fields Cookies 40 years ago, and I remember it well, she won over cookie lovers everywhere with her gooey chocolate chip cookies, melt-in-your-mouth brownies, and passion for sharing the joy of baked goods. Nowadays, you can have cookies sent right where you want them without visiting a bakery. With gourmet gift tins and baskets filled with fresh-baked cookies, you know that your order will arrive fresh and flavorful. Ordering is easy, 
and they can ship your cookies anywhere across the country. And if you're ordering as a gift, you can add a personal custom message, company logo, or family photo. Best of all, Mrs. Fields offers a 100% customer satisfaction guarantee. Uh, the Goldberg household got one of these tins. It was consumed rapidly, even though our daughter is not home these days. So anyway, to sweeten the deal, our listeners, that's remnant listeners, get 20% off their entire order when they go to mrsfields.com and enter promo code DINGO. That's $20 off any gift at mrsfields.com, promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O. mrsfields.com, promo code DINGO. Your cookies are on the way. Okay, now let me artificially segue back to the podcast. Well, again, these are the irony is these are people who are socialists but who are actually – uh, elite meritocratically, right? right? They're generally working either in you know, nonprofits, universities, law firms, all kind of stuff. And in addition to the big price tag and the recognition of like, oh, we're not just going to have a little bit of a, of a tax hike. We're going to need a big tax hike. You look hard at her actual proposal. The assumptions in it, um, one of the assumptions was that the U.S. government would get the nation's pharmaceutical companies to keep making the exact same drugs and then sell them to the government to distribute to patients at 30% of the current price. Right. Now, could you, you know, could you, you know, could the government negotiate lower prices? Sure. Could you know, could you, you know, but one of your assumptions is, oh, they'll cut 70% off the price. Right, right, right. This is again magic wand politics. Right. You're, you know, and right. you're if that's the assumption you had to make, that it's never going to work like that. Yeah. And I think there are a bunch of people who are like, oh, my goodness, she has a plan for that, but she hasn't really, you know, she's been on LSD when she was doing it. Yeah. Peyote, I should have said, for the Native American. <laughs> All right. So I actually don't want to do impeachment stuff. We got a podcast later on the eggheadery of impeachment stuff. Um, and Can I do why I don't care? I'm sorry? Can I do why I don't care? Because sure. that'll be evergreen. All right. So, Jonah, for a moment, imagine that Democrats had like 64 or 65 seats in the Senate. Mm. And that almost just about all of them were expected to, you know, that Donald Trump was like one or two votes away from being removed. How much attention would we all collectively be paying attention to it? A great deal of attention. Right? We'd be glued to our, but oh my, this would be the, this would make the Clinton impeachment look like a small story. Right. And, you know, right now in current polls, you're often finding 9% of people saying either they don't know or don't have an opinion on whether President Trump should be removed. Right? If it was actually going to happen, Everybody would be you know, glued to their seats. Sure. Everybody would be following every twist and turn and all that kind of stuff. But we know how this ends, right? You know, as I just put a little bit earlier, you're probably going to get almost all the 47 Democrats in there. Maybe Doug Jones is a no. Maybe Joe Manchin is a no. Beyond that, they're all voting for this. Almost all the 53 Republicans are going to vote no. Maybe Mitt Romney votes yes. Maybe Lisa Murkowski. Could you conceivably get a few more? Sure. But we all know this ends with a 49 to 51 vote in one form or, you know, or, or mm. within a few votes of that. So I'm spending most of my time covering the Democratic primary in the 2020 race because I don't know what's going to happen with that. There's, there's genuine yeah, suspense. Yeah. That, you know, that really matters. We all know how this one ends. This is, this is nothing surprising about impeachment. There's a little bit of curiosity on individual lawmakers here and there. But this is all going to end. And oh, by the way, for all these Democrats who thought this was a terrific idea, what do you think Trump's going to do once it fails in this? Do you think he's going to be chastened? Right. Do you think he's going to be humbled by this process? The phone call to Ukraine happened right after Mueller let him off the hook. Yeah. Right? No, I don't. I don't. He's going to call up some other foreign country and do the same. You've brought out the biggest consequence you had. And because you couldn't persuade Republicans, now you can argue whether Republicans are being reasonable or not. But yeah. You know, 
you end up with nothing. And you may end up in a situation where the first, not only was Trump be impeached, but he will get reelected. And what will that say about uh, about this democratic effort? Yeah, so um, I, I agree with a lot of that as a matter of analysis. Um, I actually think you can make a very strong case that because that is the likely reaction Trump should have, that is another reason why he should be impeached and removed. That if he's the kind of pre- person who abuses the system, tests norms, uh, self-deals, breaks the rules, um, and then when you don't actually punish successfully punish him for it or when you try to punish him for it or chastise him or censure censure him he takes it as a reason to be emboldened to do it again that is not someone who's fit for office and um uh that is not my main case for why he should be impeached or removed or any of that kind of stuff but i have a real problem with that kind of analysis even though i think it's true um that you hear from a lot of people because an enormous number of people on the right seem to have confused explanations for excuses. And so they'll say, oh, you just have to understand, you know, he's, he's not the kind of guy who apologizes. He's yeah. not the kind of guy who follows the rules. He's a disruptor. He, he's he's a an outsider. He can't be expected to distinguish between his personal and political interests and the national interest. Right. No. He's, he's a, and our ways of our constitution are strange and foreign to him, <laughs> like yeah. an unfrozen caveman. And that's all true. Yeah. But that's not an excuse. Yeah. You know, I mean, so much of, of, of sort of right wing punditry. This is a real problem I have, and it's it's with with the culture, with our political culture in general, which is that we tend, first of all, we we confuse explanations for excuses, but we also tend to not actually think of norms and rules as things to govern ourselves. We think them, we think of them as things to weaponize, to yep. screw with other people. Yep. And um, I mean, an emblematic small example of this was. During the 2016 campaign when Marco Rubio did the insultathon back, yeah. right? And all of a sudden everyone was like, well, that's so demeaning. That is so yeah, yeah. outrageous, you know, talking that way. What's gotten into Marco Rubio? Yeah, no, exactly. And it's like, well, wait a second. Why is it great when Trump does this stuff and when somebody else plays at the same level, they all of a sudden they take these standards that they don't apply to Trump and they hold them to yeah. – and the Democratic Party is full of this stuff. Like all of these things, these standards they didn't care about when Obama was in there, they now are holding against Trump. And it just, it's the weaponization of norms going both ways that drive me crazy. You know, a, a good example of this, and one I, I think I, I, you know, call me on this if I don't apply this in future to both parties. As far as I can tell, I don't think Hunter Biden or Joe Biden broke the law in any of their. In, dealings with Ukraine or Burisma holdings or right. anything like that. Now, before everybody jumps over that, I also think it was shady as all hell. Sure, sure. And it's exceptionally bad judgment. And I think, you know, first of all, I, this whole, you know, yeah, Hunter and I never talked about it. Well, I, I don't trust you, Joe. I'm sorry. I'm not willing to take your word on that. Um, and Hunter, also, why the hell wouldn't you talk about it? Right? You, you know, know I mean, it's or like, how about the variation of, son, don't take this gig, right. even though it's lucrative. You're putting me in an awkward spot on Ukraine policy. Or, dad, would this be okay if I did this? Right? Would it cause yeah. a problem yeah. for you? And, and you know, for uh, probably the biggest thing I've written all year was this law. I looked at everything, and Hunter Biden's been doing this his whole life, yeah. right? So this has been a, um, also Joe Biden's brother and all that kind of stuff. Look, this is a this is a workaround. Burisma clearly wanted a highly powered friend in Washington. Same deal with the Chinese investor. All kind of stuff, okay. 
Did any of it violate any U.S. law as far as I can tell? No, because nobody bothered to write a law saying you're not allowed to, you know, you're not allowed to employ the sons of U.S. officials on your corporate board because you wanted to have a powerful friend in Washington, right? A lot of these cases, if, if you're really pinned down a Democrat on this, and they are squirmy and wiggly on this, but if you really pin them down, they'll say, well, okay, maybe it created the appearance of a conflict of interest. And I'm like, yes. But here's what's more. Why do you want to avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest? Let's assume that Joe Biden is telling the truth, that he and his son never talked about this. And let's assume that they really want to get rid of that prosecutor Shokin because he was a bad guy and it had nothing to do with Burisma. Maybe that's the case. I'm a little skeptical, but fine. It still created a situation where it looks like there was a really corrupt reason to get rid of it. Like the reason you avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest is so you don't end up in this situation where you did something that looked shady as all hell, but you're left insisting, well, it wasn't really shady as all hell. That whole thing about avoiding avoiding the appearance matters mm-hmm. because you're never in that situation where you're trying to – because you know, because now we're in a situation where Trump would say, well, look, it only appears bad, but it's not really – actually, he doesn't. We have the immaculate phone call. It was born without sin. It was a perfect, you know, all that kind of stuff. But again, I'd like to have that standard of avoid the appearance of impropriety put back into place in Washington because when you do that, you know what else you avoid? Actual impropriety. Right. You know. Right. No, I mean um, – uh, Sorry for the audio levels there as I get wound up by this. You know. but, but that standard is not one – that the current president of the United States can clear <laughs> in almost any regard, right? I mean, oh, yeah. okay. So, I mean, but so I, I agree. I mean, like, um, I've brought this up here before. I've written about it a bunch of times. You ever see a movie, A Simple Plan? No, but I've heard you raving about yeah, it. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's not a feel good movie. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 more of a feel good movie than say Schindler's List, <laughs> um, or you know, but it's. The basic point of it, the reason why I argue that it's like the most conservative, one of the most conservative movies in the 1990s, the basic point of it is like if you adhere to the common sense but also Judeo-Christian sort of trial and error Hayekian things of like be honest, work hard, uh, uh, treat people with respect, all these kinds of things, you end up not finding trouble in your life. And it's it's sort of one of these things I'm kind of fascinated with. It's one of the reasons why I love, like, uh, the TV show Sons of Anarchy, because they take the absolute opposite advice. And once you're outside of the law, everything gets adjudicated by violence and all this kind of stuff. And so – but the more you – anyway, the more you stick to sort of basic golden rule kind of stuff, it is almost impossible for the appearance of impropriety. Mm. And we live in a political culture now that, like, if you could just – Avoiding the appearance of impropriety shouldn't be your primary motive. Your primary motive should be avoiding impropriety. Mm. And it turns out if you pursue the avoidance of impropriety, you also, as a lucky happenstance, avoid the appearance of impropriety. Yeah. Um, and like Mitt Romney, I mean, there's just not a lot of examples of him waking up with hookers and cocaine, <laughs> even though they're, they're perfectly like honest and legitimate explanations for it. Well, ladies, I'm happy to do this drug counseling with you. And I don't <laughs> exactly. think, you know, I, I hope you've learned that this is, you know, why you don't want to get involved in this sort of thing. Thank um, you for coming and I'll pray for you. We interrupt Jim Garrity's strange Mitt Romney hypotheticals to bring you the second sponsor for today's podcast, We're sponsored today by the National Association of Scholars, one of America's most vibrant intellectual communities. Free speech at our college and university campuses is a topic of increasing concern to many of us, and with good reason. 
Political correctness dominates the landscape that students face on campus today. Colleges work hard to persuade alumni that all is well. But your values are often not reflected in classrooms or on the quad. Worse still, students and professors can be censured or punished for supporting ideas that were once common sense, such as socialism as a dangerous ideology or personal character matters. Fortunately, there's an organization standing against this tide. The National Association of Scholars is a national nonprofit community of scholars and citizens working to defend a classical vision of higher education. NAS promotes intellectual freedom and the value of civic education and is committed to upholding the values of a liberal arts education in the Western tradition. If you care about higher education and about the direction of our nation's future, consider joining the National Association of Scholars. Membership is open to all who believe that universities should seek truth rather than promote political ideologies. NAS stands up for those courageous enough to provide a voice for them on campus. You can support their work today by joining as a member. As a member, you will receive a subscription to NAS's quarterly journal, Academic Questions, as well as exclusive invitations to events around the country with speakers such as Heather McDonald, Wilfred McClay, and Mark Bowerline. To join, just go to nas.org slash dingo to sign up today. That's nas.org slash Dingo. We thank the National Association of Scholars for supporting the remnant. Some of you are wondering why I'm doing this in the first place, maybe, but I'm not going to tell you. We're just going to get right back to this conversation between Jonah and Jim. Okay, so uh, is there anything before we turn to the really important issues? Uh, is there anything more in the in the rank punditry department that we need to discuss? Um, uh, no. <laughs> All right. Um, if it's not coming to your mind, it's not coming to mine. Yeah, I mean, I just, again, before we get to the important stuff, one last sort of professional thing. Um, you and I basically have the same job descriptions, more or less. You know, I mean, there's, you write novels. I haven't written a novel yet, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, but pundits do radio, TV, mm -hmm. podcast kind of, blah, blah. Do you find it more exhausting to stay on top of the news yeah. than you used to. I mean, I I don't think it's just old age. I just find it almost emotionally exhausting in a way that I didn't before. Yeah, it, very much so. And a little bit of this is a reflection of the current president. Uh, I believe he tweeted something in the, like 120 some times in a in a day a little while back. Um. As you know, hopefully your listeners all know, I write a morning newsletter for NR called The, the Morning Jolt. Uh, my, Highly recommend it. Thank you. I, I aim to get it out off my desk to the editors by 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. or by 9 a.m. Um, 9 p.m. is a really comfortable Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, school bus arrives around then. Uh, I walk my younger son to the school bus. So I'm really trying to get it done by like 840 or so. Mm -hmm. Some days I make it. Some days I don't. There are a lot of mornings where I'll have a good chunk of it written. And there are days it's about the morning news. There are a lot of days like something pops into my it, – it's got almost as much planning as the G file. Uh -huh. um, and I, I you know, have some thought. And Trump will tweet, I am really mad about rutabagas today. And it's like, well, the news cycle is going to be about rutabagas. Right. We've just – you know, the, the, you know and it could, yeah, I'm, rutabagas are my stand-in, but it could be – whatever it is, Trump has an amazing ability to dominate the news cycle. And whether or not he has ADD – he has very quickly figured out, like somebody pointed out, remember the scandal about the pardon of the Navy SEAL? 
Yeah. That was two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is whoosh, gone yeah. from our, our news. The Kurds, that was a really big deal. Gone. You know, um, nothing sticks. I suppose it's sort of interesting that the impeachment process, they, they, they managed to have kept this issue front and center. Um, but there is kind of almost like this time dilation that goes on where things that happened not that long ago, first of all, they never were in the news long enough to stick in people's minds for people to digest them, for people to think about them, for people to, you know, have a reaction to them. And this, it's just, just this, your life is on uh, fast forward, yeah. that, that it's constantly changing, you know. I mean, the good news is, is that there's never a shortage of interesting things to write about. So I the, go back and forth on that because I mean, sometimes I, writing about Trump is... Yeah, no, I, I was going to know what about, Yeah, because it's a known quantity now and, you know. So I did, well, the morning jolt, it did a lot. I, I was uh, chaperoning a, a busload of fourth graders to uh, Williamsburg mm-hmm. about a week and a half ago. So I had to pre-write the jolt. I had to get off. We had to leave at 530 in the morning. So I decided to look for like easily overlooked bits of good news. Jonah, in the past year, they have made remarkable breakthroughs in a whole bunch of different types of cancer, diabetes, cat allergies, all kinds of medical breakthroughs. You barely heard anything about it. Uh, remarkable environmental breakthroughs. The ozone hole down in the, on the South Pole has never been smaller, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, endangered species making a comeback. Humpback whales. The Enterprise will not need to come back and save George and Gracie because the <laughs> South Atlantic humpback, you know, there's all kinds of good news going on. So the first thing is, is that did you see the um, Colorado governor put out this ad about how climate change is basically putting us into this like Mad Max type situation of a t- surface temperature of 120. Mm. It is like total sci-fi apocalyptic stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he said, this is close. You know, we have to take action. There's all kinds of good news out there that never gets anybody's attention because it doesn't draw the clicks. You know, it doesn't get the attention the way you, you, know, you don't have to look at NR or, or what you guys are doing to the dispatch. Look at the Washington Post on any given day. They list their top five articles. Top five articles are almost in, almost every single day. Trump stinks. Mm-hmm. Here's the worst thing Trump has done ever since yesterday, right? right. Now, I, look, fine that you know, but don't think that everybody at the Washington Post doesn't know that hasn't hasn't noticed that incentive. Everybody wants to have the most highly trafficked, of, you know, articles of the day, right? So everybody isn't doing things have never been worse, and I don't think that's an accurate representation of the world. I think this is leading to higher levels of anxiety and stress and depression and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it adds to a skew. I think you know. The the neuron flow you get from your Twitter feed of constant, you know, stuff. Um, it's bad. It's a really bad news environment. I, you know, I got so, into... Oh, sure. Don't tell Rich that you did this, but you're basically making a massive pitch for the dispatch. Because as a matter of editorial policy, we are not going to respond to tweets. Um, we're not going to... We're going to, like, post stuff in the morning and probably not post anything again for the rest of the day. Um, and if we do post at the end of the day, it'll be at the end of the day and it'll be... Long reads, slow reads, no pop-up ads, all that kind of stuff. And um, because we think there are an enormous number of people who are just who want news that they can trust, but they hate what I call the monetization of dopamine hits, mm-hmm. where they're just being told constantly to be outraged about everything. Um, you brought up the Washington Post. I, mean, I still think there's a lot of great journalism at the Washington Post, but um, they did something. I, I, I haven't seen it firsthand, but I am told by people who've seen it. That in their newsroom they have like a giant yeah like, oh yeah like a NORAD just giant screen yep where in real time you're seeing who's like the number one thing and the numbers going up let's get in the traffic all that kind of stuff that is an unbelievably perverse thing to do to a newsroom because it just sends this signal like you just wrote five thousand words 
on Boko Haram cutting off the arms of children. Mm -hmm. And then you see Jen Rubin's 500th piece saying the exact same thing about Donald Trump, just soar past it. Mm -hmm. It creates just a really perverse incentive structure for things. Um, First of all, that is an accurate description of what's there. Um, Look, somewhere in the 1990s, a large chunk of the general public decided it never wanted to pay for news again. Yeah. And you're getting what you pay for, America. You know, you know, this, newspapers used to be a quarter, 50 cents. Even now, I think they're what, two bucks, three bucks? Wow. Like Subscription. Journals like. Okay. Journals five. kidney. But if you subscribe, you get a lower rate. Uh-huh. You know? Um, so you know, if you're not willing to pay for this kind of news, this is what you're going to get. Yeah. If you say, oh, my Facebook feed gives me everything I need. Well, you know, you're, you're, things are great until Russians figure out, you know, we're going to put memes up there and see what, how far it spreads. Yeah. You know? It's also like saying you're. Your pimp or your crack dealer gives you everything you need. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> your yeah. Facebook feed gives you everything you need. Let me just observe everything you're saying. Boy, that sounds really good uh, at the dispatch. Jonah, <laughs> easily the second best news publication. After I subscribe to NR Plus, it's probably exactly what been, people should run. To, yeah. I am still a fellow of the National Review Institute. I know. I, I, yeah. I'm a big fan of NR. Um, but, uh, okay, so very quickly. Um, That's my insurance for rich. To, you know. <laughs> um, Mandalorian. Yeah. Where do you come down? Love it. Yeah. Love it. Um, enjoying it. First of all, let me observe that, you know, in this era of binging, you know, all 10 episodes come out at one time or something. Like, you know, I, I'm watching, first of all, let me point out for anyone like, you know, God, Jim is such a geek. Well, I used to be such a geek. Now I have sons. I, I have, you know, my, my younger son is nine going on 10. My older son is approaching teenagerhood. Um, Terrifying. And, uh, but we, you know, Friday night, we, we, when we can get the clear signal from Disney plus, we sit down and we watch it and we love it. And it's great. It's, you know, exactly the kind of show I want. It, somebody pointed out probably around the episode where it should, is it okay to talk a few episodes ago or sure. are you watching? I think I'm caught up now. Okay. Well, last one was the prison break thing, right? Yes. Yeah, there you go. So I'm up. Um, I mean, at some point in your youth, you could have had some moment where you're like, okay, I have Boba Fett, and he's trying to rescue Yoda from the Jawas, and the Jawas are on the sand. It was like just playing with your figures in the sandbox yeah, yeah. up on the screen. And it was just, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, it's great. And after all the contra- – you know, let's point out, you know, a lot of people didn't like The Last Jedi. There was kind of this, you know, consternation and division in the fan base. Here is something that's just – as I keep pointing out to people, for people who are skeptical, yeah, it's, just, it's Star Wars as a Western. Um, no, I've talked about that on the yeah, podcast. It's yeah. very Western, and it's like you and Jack chastises me for bringing it up every now and then. But um, uh, the 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 cliches just come. I mean, you're just like, oh, now they're onto Shane. Now they're into, you yeah. know, they're, oh, that's that's Magnificent Seven, you know. But oh, really, it was only Magnificent Two yeah. in that episode. But um, uh, so the first question is, what is your theory of Baby Yoda? Um, because we saw another of Yoda's species in the prequel trilogy. It's hot. It's just hot. Uh, (laughs) Um, Yaddle, I believe is her name. Clearly Yoda is of a species. They clearly don't have a very high population and probably now that we've all been told about midichlorians, for whatever reason, they're very powerful in the force. Midichlorians Um, for listeners who had dates in high school. No, no, wait, wait, don't tell people what midichlorians are. (laughs) If, if, if the, if the knowledge of what midichlorians are has, has not entered your brain yet, you're one of the lucky ones. Yeah. That's not, you know, um, but so the, the gist being that, uh, so he's not Yoda. Yoda passed away in Return of the Jedi. Spoiler alert. Um, but he's of the same species and he has probably great potential to be very powerful with the force. And the question is, you know, 
will he be raised by the empire and to do bad things or will he be raised by some good guys to do good things or will someone just want to live with him quietly on some, you know, backwater farm somewhere? I agree that this is the most likely theory, Mm -hmm. but I also think that this may be precisely what they want you to think for the big reveal later. Um, That it's Yoda reborn or something? Well, so first of all, we don't know how... Yoda's species. I wish we knew what the name of it was because otherwise yeah. you, you can't say Yoda's. <laughs> By the way, now let's point out the the for those who follow who are really into this stuff, there have been a bazillion Star Wars novels and comic books right. and video games and all that stuff. Lucas has never let anybody play in this particular part of the sandbox. Right, right. The, 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 this was kept a deliberate mystery all through all these series. The only, my understanding, I remember it was a big New Yorker profile Lucas years ago and the only thing that he would allow is like – Yoda's age was very old. Like yeah. It was like 800 years or something like that. Where 900 years old you yeah. reach, you will not look so good. Yeah. And we are not, um, but we are not, we are not referencing that part of the, uh, we're not referencing the apocrypha of the books yes. and yeah. comic books, yeah. right? We're just sticking with. If it's not up on screen, it's not movies, canon. Right? Yeah. Um, we don't know how the Yodai, let's mm. call them, um, procreate. And frankly, I find your cis-heteronormative assumptions <laughs> about this to be really kind of somewhat offensive. Um, for all we know, Yaddle was the same, quote-unquote, gender as Yoda, right? Um, and the very concept of gender may be alien to them. And so it is. it seems to me somewhat possible that baby Yoda – first of all, keep in mind his name is baby Yoda – um, I haven't called him anything in this. I understand yeah, that, right. but like you know, maybe it's hiding in plain sight. Maybe the way they reproduce is sort of like I don't know, like I think jellyfish or something. There are some animals that basically just clone themselves. Yeah, and for all we know, because the 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 force it turns out really is just like cloud the cloud, right? It's got all the data in it. At some point, he gets old enough where he just downloads his Yoda memory banks and becomes Yoda again. The force surrounds us. It penetrates us. It puts binds the universe together. Um, you know? And on the other hand, the idea that the life cycle of Yodai is so long that they have a 50 year infancy is biologically and evolutionarily insane. Well, okay. Uh, I would point out, is he infant or is, I think he's like more toddlerish. Toddler, fine. Okay, okay but, but yes, like, yeah. The, um, you know, one human year equals 25 Yoda years or something. Yeah, yeah. And nowhere in nature does it really work like that. Like human beings have um, one of the longest true childhoods or infancies or whatever you want to call it, babyhoods um, of almost all species. And it comes at an incredible evolutionary cost. The idea that his natural environment is anything like Dagobah, right? And give you a baby for 50 years. Jonah. I know he's not from Dagobah, but it's sort of like Dagobah is to Yoda's species what Jacksonville, Florida is to Jews. It's just where you want to retire. It feels like where you belong. No? Jonah, I'm, I'm shaking my head in disapproval. Yoda fled to Dagobah. I know that. At the end of episode. All right. So in other words, it may be a, a environment. It may be an environment that he finds easy to acclimate to. 
but he eats frogs. We know he right? likes that kind of okay. thing, right? But nonetheless, right? We don't know if that's one the Yoda home. Pl- it's unlikely to be the Yoda home planet. We no, I, I'm not other, saying yeah. it's okay. the Yoda home planet. I'm, right. I'm saying that's like it, it's well suited for him. Or it may have just way been, that Hoth is suited to Tauntauns okay. because the tree had was strong in the dark side of the Force that would protect him from the Sith who were trying to detect him in the Force. Nerds. <laughs> so. <laughs> Okay, so um, have you um, have you seen uh, the Six Underground thing on? Netflix? Yes, I've just finished it last night. Ironically, um, it is the sequel to Deadpool that I was looking for. Uh, <laughs> I, I re- yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I talk about it a lot on Glop, so I don't want to like yeah. repeat it all here. But um, uh, the first twenty minutes are really great. Yeah, and um, for those of us of a certain lack of grounding in the Judeo-Christian moral system to finally see a movie where they're having a car chase where the pedestrians, well, many pedestrians are actually hit and killed (laughs) is oddly refreshing. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, it then becomes a very strange, I mean, I I enjoy Actually, that's that's exactly my take. Let me observe. So, as you mentioned, um, earlier this year, I wrote a novel, a thriller novel, uh, Between Two Scorpions, available at Amazon, yada, yada, yada. Um, For what that first 20 to 30 minutes was, was kind of the vibe I was going for. You have your team. uh, Some of them are wisecracking and sarcastic. They're in a very high intense action. uh, The butt kicking female. There were bits and pieces like, oh, oh, you know, did did Michael Bay, you know, get a copy of that, you know, of what I was doing? Um, just, and also this like fun atmosphere, even though crazy things are happening, it's a high intense. The problem is, and, and I, I overall liked it. I think the first 20 to 30 minutes, you're like, oh, this is a five star. Yeah, yeah. This is exactly what I wanted from an action comedy. And then it tries to go angsty. Yeah. And then it tries to go pathos and, and kind of this, like, you know, these are the decisions we've made, which is, you know, which is weighty and heavy. And also this, this is the most Michael Bayesian, Michael Bay movie ever, yeah, yeah. right? Where like they're hitting hot dog carts and they're exploding, right? Yeah. Uh, the women, the everything, in it, you know, wild, crazy stunts. It's extremely entertaining from beginning to end. But every once in a while, everybody's trying to act and you're like, well, well, come on. I didn't, I didn't come for this. Right. Know? Yeah. No, I mean. And I say this loving Ryan Reynolds, and I think he's really good. You know, this this is either, either this is you know, like I said, Deadpool without the scars, uh-huh. or this is just how dead how, how Ryan Reynolds is. And every role, he just kind of his natural sarcastic personality seeps into it. And well, but what's weird is that Ryan Reynolds had a really awful career for a long time, yeah. and it seems like someone in Hollywood is like. It was sort of like the first two seasons of Seinfeld. It really yeah. wasn't popular, wasn't that good. I mean, it had these moments. Mm-hmm. But um, was it Brandon Tartikoff or whoever it was was like, no, there's something here. No. And people seem to think there's something in Rhino Reynolds and we just got to figure it out. And eventually they educated the consumer. It took Green Lantern and that 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 terrible romantic comedy with um, – Sandra Bullock? Sandra Bullock. Right. Um can I go full on geek on you here? Yeah. Okay. So where else could you do that? How say, so uh, X Men Origins Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, I remember. All right. A generally pretty disappointing first solo Wolverine film. Mm-hmm. I, I really like Hugh Jackman. I'm a huge fan of the comic book series and the Wolverine character. Really not that great a film. And everyone heard, oh, uh, Ryan Reynolds is going to be in it and he's going to be Deadpool. And there was this excitement. Not only does he not wear the costume, right. he's only in it for like 10 minutes or so. Um, he's only, he's not entertaining, right? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, 10% of what you expected from this. 
Ryan Reynolds loves the character of Deadpool. And somewhere on the internet, you can find a demo reel of him, what kind of turned out to be the, the highway scene in the first Deadpool movie. They did it as a test of whether they could get the, um, the costume to look right with the eyes and all kind of, you know, a little bit of CGI plus with everything else. And it, it's a little bit different, but it was just a, can we make this work? And it's about 10 minutes. And it's a lot of the same gags and a lot of the same stuff. And it's hilarious. And that floater, and apparently in it, he's like making fun of the studio executives who had previously said this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. So that breaking that fourth wall, very meta, all that kind of stuff. And somebody, I guess, so, you know, 20th Century Fox said, okay, now we see it. Now we see it. And apparently the thing also has been noting is that Deadpool was by superhero movie standards fairly cheap. Yeah. You know, as he constantly says, uh, walking around Casa Loma, which I walked around in Toronto earlier this year, you know, for all the money we spent, it's funny how we only see two X-Men around here. It's funny, you know, <laughs> you know like so many law, you know. But also you have to wait a certain amount of time to educate the consumer so they get these references about superhero yes. movies, yes. right? You know, you can't do the wisecracking, breaking the fourth wall thing until people are a little tired of conventional superhero Yes, movies. yeah. Right, obviously we could do this all day because we, <laughs> we kind of have. Um <laughs> I'm trying to think if there are any other important pop qu- pop culture questions to be addressed. Are you nervous about Last Skywalker? No, because um, so I, one of the things I was going to disagree with you in the rank punditry portion of the podcast was one of the things that I find exhausting about the political moment isn't – believe me, I'm getting to someplace here uh, – isn't just the rapidity and the craziness of the news cycle. It's that emotionally I am somewhat dead inside to the Republican Party. I just don't – I used to think that I should really care about it more. Don't care about the Democratic Party either, but I care about American institutions now more. I've, I've become mm-hmm. more concerned about root cause kind of things and all the rest. Um, and that lack of caring makes it more difficult to get out of bed and write columns all the time because you have no rooting interest the way you kind of felt before. Even when I had my criticism of the Republican Party, I wanted them to be a better party. I wanted them to succeed. And right now – other than maybe holding the Senate, I just don't care because yeah. I don't think any of them deserve my care. Yeah. That's how I feel about the Star Wars franchise. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so I got – because you, you reminded me of something I, I wanted to weigh in on. Uh, Jeff Andrew, right? The, uh-huh. This uh, congressman from South Jersey, Atlantic City area uh, who was with the Democrats and doesn't support impeachment. And now he's slipping to the Republicans. Jonah, assuming you, you – know, maybe you read this in the morning, Jolt. How often does Jeff Andrew up until now voted with the Trump administration position? Oh, some tiny amount, right? 7%. Yeah. Seven percent. This guy's not a conservative. This guy's not a. The only thing that makes this guy on the Republican side is he doesn't want to impeach the president. Right. And the fact that, you know, Trump and everybody else in the Republican Party is welcoming him with open arms. Yeah. And the NRCC is thrilled to not have to win back a seat and all that stuff now means what is the Republican identity? Supporting Donald Trump. Yeah. Period. Presses me. And, you know, it doesn't matter on tax. Like, this guy didn't support a border wall. This guy didn't support you. – this guy had wanted to investigate uh, uh, customs and – you go down the list. Right. There's almost never he's on the side of the Trump administration. But he doesn't want to impeach him and that's all it takes. Yeah. No, that – There's that. Yeah. No. Two things about that. One, it makes me want to cut myself. But <laughs> two um, – I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Self-harm is not a joke. But uh, two, it's particularly shocking given that the long history in American politics and American life generally – of morally upstanding people coming from the district around Atlantic City, New Jersey. <laughs> um, I mean, that is, I mean, according to ancient prophecy, the na- the next St. Thomas More would come from there. And so it's just shocking, yeah. shocking to me. Um, 
But no, that's I mean that's that's exactly part of my problem. Is just this I didn't see the morning jolt this morning because I was doing crazy things. Which reminds me, I I gotta get the lot that that lime powder for the body. But um, anyway, um, I don't you know at National Review, uh, our longtime publisher Bill Rusher, his advice to young writers was always, politicians will always disappoint you, and. I'm used to that, right, about the disappointment mm-hmm. in politicians. Um, but what I can't muster any enthusiasm for is making the dispo- disappointments things to celebrate now yeah. <laughs> rather than, you know, um, things to sort of tolerate. And it just it, – it, it, it vexes me, which is why I, I play an enormous amount of Starfleet Command on my iPhone. <laughs> um, and I'm very into it of late. And I, that's one of the reasons why I need Circle. But that's neither here nor there. Anyway, Jim Garrity, always a pleasure to have you. Thank you for coming on. Um, and I hope to have you back on soon. You have to be one of the most frequent guests on this podcast, I think. I mean, maybe not number one, but certainly in the top three or four. I, I'd be a little resentful if I wasn't in that top group. But yeah, no, I, I always enjoy it, Jonah. It's always fun. People can tell this is, it's very easy to forget we have microphones in front of us. And it's yeah. It's good me catching I mean, up. So. The weird thing is like, I recently had Ramesh on and we both love Ramesh. Right. Um, but Ramesh has very similar to like the Tyler Cowen problem, which is an internal term we have here. Tyler Cowen's brilliant. Just brilliant. Ramesh is brilliant, right? I mean, on... on... Oh, Ramesh is the smartest guy I know. And I said this on an NR cruise once, introducing him, and he said, you need to get to know more people. (laughs) Um, Even on the planet Vulcan, people look at him and like, whoa. (laughs) But the problem with Ramesh is that he lacks a gene that both you and I have in abundance, which is the ability and the desire to fill silences with the sound of our own voice. And when you ask Ramesh a question, he gives you a very economical, terse answer and then stops talking. (laughs) And it creates senses of panic in me. Like with you and with certain other people, the challenge is figuring out where to reinsert myself into the monologue. With Ramesh, it's like you can ask him this incredibly complicated question and he's like Judge Bork this way. He'll just go, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Give me a little more. I, I'm a baby bird. Put something in it. Look, that's your that's your flaws in interviewer. Don't ask yes or no questions. Yeah, but I mean, anyway. But yeah. anyway, always great to have you here and have you back again soon. Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and all the rest. Same to you, Jonah. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Keep up alive. All right, so. Uh, <laughs> Jim has left the building. Um, I'll explain why I'm laughing another time. I have to keep some things cryptic around here. John has a long mustache. Uh, um, So, uh, Jack, have you seen Richard Jewell? No, it just came out. I'm sorry. You you were like accused me of the assumption was that I had already seen it. No, I was curious if you've seen it. I saw it. Um, the fair Jessica took, uh, uh, pity on me and said, you want to go to the movies last Friday night and, uh, saw it in the Georgetown Lowe's and, um, shockingly, there seemed to be quite a few MAGA people there because the crowd, bur- big chunks of the crowd burst into applause on a Friday night in Georgetown, um, when the media got its comeuppance towards the end of the movie which i just thought was kind of culturally oh do they do they do a 
Inglorious Bastards, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood thing, and the the Atlanta bomber blows up something, some some newspaper. No, it is not. It's not quite quite that. It's more just a a, a stern talking to to bad people in the fake news kind of thing. Um, but uh, I don't know it's got me thinking. I mean, it, it's I think it was Peter Sutterman who said that that, and I'm thinking about doing a G file on this, but that it was Sutterman who said that. I'm not sure whether it's a great movie or not, but it does give you this sense that of what Hollywood would be like if it was run by conservatives. <laughs> and the thing is, the where I disagree with that is that we actually know what Hollywood would be like if it was run by conservatives because that's what it was in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, what about all the commies in Hollywood? That's true. That's true. But the studio execs, <laughs> you know, they, they, uh, no, that's a fair point. But my only, my, my real point is that this thing is so shot through with victimology and self pity, um, and anger and resentment towards the, our alleged cultural betters that it is not, it would not make sense as a conservative movie if Hollywood we lived in the kind of country where conservatives actually ran Hollywood. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. Um, what other action? Do we have any other action items to 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 cover? Uh, well, I, I I have a couple of things to say about the Duckland Garvey episode. Uh oh. Okay. Which was fine. It's a good episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you used you used you took advantage of him. <laughs> uh, Please clarify. <laughs> you you said a he bunch. He got into my van of his own free will. <laughs> you you said things to him that you have said to me before, uh-huh. and that you have said on Glop before. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But he had probably never heard, and yeah. so he was just nodding along, like, "Oh wow, that's so interesting." Uh-huh. Uh And as I listened to this after the fact, I'm like, "Oh, he's going to talk about westerns and the Mandalorian uh-huh, again." Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, okay. Uh huh. I I think it's more interesting when. You have some off kilter personality like me around to just <laughs> if you say so yourself. <laughs> I look. I'm I'm just full of honest self reflection at this point okay. to um, make sure that when you go on one of these pop culture spiels, especially one that you ha- had just made on Glop, uh-huh. to be like, wait a minute, let's try to do something. Let's say something different here. That's fair. That's fair. Um, uh, in my own defense. I had not anticipated the degree to which uh, the talented Mr. Garvey uh, was um, – I don't know if it was nervousness or, re- or, or professional reluctance um, to get too opinionated on anything because he's carving out this career as a reporter. And, um, and so there were times when I was – just trying to keep the ball of conversation going and given how much day drinking I had done that day, <laughs> uh, falling back on stuff I've said before was um, uh, the only safe harbor I could find. Um, but point point is well taken. I don't think Andrew Egger will have that problem with you. That's probably true. When we got to get Egger on at uh, some point, it's funny, um, the, the dispatch offices, which were a few blocks from here um, uh, yesterday at the office, they were telling me that Kevin Spacey was seen in the lobby. And really? Yeah. And um and I was asking whether uh Andrew Egger, another of our young writers, um, whether uh 
Spacey spotted him and ordered him clean and perfumed and brought to his tent. But um, uh, apparently nothing of the sort happened. Nothing untoward happened. Um, and, uh, I, you know, Jack, just so you know, because there have been, in terms of happenstance stuff, you haven't been on in a couple episodes. And then, you know, I'm starting to hear from people saying they they want their Jack Butler. It's not quite a Butlerian jihad, per se. But, but what it, is? But what is? Um and you had some guy on your uh, podcast uh, talking about technology stuff? Talking about the future. So what was all that about? Uh, it was about the future. I'm trying to think it big picture as possible, uh-huh. what the future will look like. What do you think it's going to look like? Chrome. Everything is chrome in the future. A lot of chrome? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, any like fascinating takeaways that if people – listen to your podcast they might get i mean I, why i have to pull teeth like this to get you to promote your podcast is kind of a mystery to me but um. <laughs> I, i'm just trying to i'm just trying to keep things interesting um and I, not talking about your podcast is the way to do that <laughs> that's just what they'll be expecting us to do that's my favorite line in airplane I, airplane i think uh that and the part where the guy punches all of the people trying to give him things at the airport same guy uh hari krishna's well, there's Hare Krishna, then like Jehovah's Witness. Oh, I guess that's right. it's just that's right. they keep coming. So now you're too young to actually remember Hare Krishnas at the airports, right? I don't think I ever encountered any. Yeah, it seems to be an artifact of a time when you could actually, uh, if your if your lover was leaving on a plane on a flight, you could actually run through the gate and catch that person. Right, you could walk them to the gate. Yeah, yeah there was a, there was that kind of stuff going on. Um, All of Home Alone, for example. It, Everything is very different if under modern security procedures. Yeah. Also, you know, they try to get around that with the Love Actually, um, where the kid like vaults through security, and everyone just thinks it's sort of adorable. But I, I think he'd get tased. Um, and yeah, but there used to be a thing with you know, the Hare Krishnas at the airports. I mean, that was based on reality. Um, but yeah, one of the things, the predictions that Caleb Watney, our street fellow, made is there are a lot of transportation-based predictions. He thinks transportation is going to become a lot more efficient even than it already is. And he thinks driverless cars, which are currently undergoing a period of skepticism after initial, like, uh, ballyhooedness. Mm-hmm are going to actually become feasible and practical in ever greater numbers uh, soon. So that's just one of many things that he that he consulted his, his palantir to try to divine. And with that, uh, Jack, are you going home for um, Christmas? Yep, to Ohio, where I'm from. Um, well, I'm going off to Spain to see my daughter, which I'm very excited about. Um and uh, I leave tomorrow, and we're going to try and stockpile a we're do, sort of doing marathon podcast reporting recording um so that we don't go dark while I'm gone but um but anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing my daughter and um getting the hell out of Washington for a little while and then when I get back, it's the full launch um of the dispatch, which you can go to now to sign up for. Newsletters from me, from David French, from the whole Morning Dispatch team at thedispatch.com. And uh, until then, I'll see you next time. I was carried to Ohio on a swarm of bees. Stand up straight at the foot of your love. 
say like a um prize fight where the one of the fighters has to go three rounds for everyone to get their purse you might have to carry me on some of the uh um news of the day stuff because sure I'm swamped it's but, funny how you think i've been following him I, actually i can do a lot about how i'm not really following impeachment yeah um but it doesn't have to all be about okay. impeachment I mean, like, all right. we'll do some primary stuff and all that so all right. okay um and this is going to air hopefully today or first thing tomorrow okay 